box system, which is, again, in everything we see is a product of something. It's a product of how we have previously behaved, how we've been sort of programmed to think and see things. So if we see that, oh, they want us to hire minority groups, okay, panic, 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 get one in. Then announce it to the world and then ask the world to applaud you because you've got a minority group now. Show them off. I'm done. My job is done. You see, I got one minority group. I am a champion of diversity. Yay. When we succeed, do we look back? We habitually run our race going forward, going forward, and sometimes stepping all over dead bodies and never even stopping to recognize who they are. I honestly do not think this is how to be human. I think we have to build in time to look back, to look at who's fallen down and why they're falling down, and if there's anything we can. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day. Tune in to discover what it takes to truly develop within human resources as we delve deep into growth, engagement and leadership strategies that will help you unlock the hidden potential within your business. By listening to this podcast, we hope to empower you and your workforce towards achieving significant HR organizational success. Hello and welcome back to the HR L&D podcast. Today I'm joined by Margaret Oshieng, who is a business psychologist, a diversity and inclusion consultant and founder at the Inclusive Village, where Margaret designs workplace solutions that enable people and organisations to adopt a village culture approach to inclusion. Now I met with Margaret at a recent recruitment and diversity event hosted by CIPD London, where both Margaret and I were invited to form part of an expert panel. Now, I absolutely loved her thought leadership approach to diversity and inclusion, which is why I was delighted that she was happy to join me today for a more detailed conversation on this podcast. Margaret's approach to DNI helps individuals and organizations to identify and remove barriers to inclusion, performance, and creativity posed by silos, clans, and tribes that often emerge explicitly or implicitly in social groups, including, of course, the workplace. As part of the village spirit, Margaret is organising a fantastic event for women who want to be game changers in March. So stay tuned to find out more about that later on in the podcast as well. So without further ado, let me welcome Margaret Oshieng to the HR L&D podcast. Five quick questions. Understanding where we are to know where we are going. My name is Margaret Oshieng. I was born and spent most of my life uh, in Kenya. So I have lived here just over 10 years now. And so my career started in Kenya. And so when I moved here about 10 years ago, uh, so I, um, uh, part of that has been um, the longest time I've spent in an industry was about nine, eight years. And that was spent uh, in the charitable sector in various roles like fundraising and raising grants to help um, uh, poverty projects in developing countries. And, and so while I worked in the charitable sector, I had a chance of working with people who were based in different parts of the world. Say uh, there was a time I was working with a, a global board. Um, that were in, I think, nine different countries, I think four or five different time zones at the same time. Um, and, and earlier on in my career, I started off, um, I've worked in, in, in the aviation sector, um, I've, I've held various marketing roles. So my career has been evolving as my life has changed. Uh, but then um, a few years ago, about five years ago or so, um, I started to, to notice something. So having spent about seven years up until that time in, in the charitable sector, there was something I, I was seeing, especially based here, that was not matching with, with my expectation. There's something I wanted to bring on board. I saw that, that, that organizations needed to embrace something that unites uh, the world, a, a common conversation around culture and inclusivity and, and change. And, and so that kind of triggered, and my own sort of career experiences triggered me to, to change careers and come into this space as a business psychologist, um, and then moving on to uh, diversity and leadership uh, consulting, which is what I spend most of my time doing now. Wow. So, you say, so you've got a, a real varied background, starting, as you say, in Kenya. You've been over here now for nearly, nearly 10 years. So you've got real experience in dealing with real cross-cultural working practices, I'm sure. And I know you've got a huge passion for helping individuals at all levels as well and, and very much you know across cultures you sort of help navigate and, and challenge barriers to career satisfaction career progression personal development and things like that 
what do you think everyone needs in order to have a fair chance to thrive? And can you tell me more about the kind of human-centric work that you've been doing to, to encourage that? Yes, yeah, so um, I think most of us assume if you are, if everything lines up for you from the time you're born to how you're raised and you happen to just grow up and thrive, I think you would rightfully assume that that's how the world works for everyone. And so for each and every one of us, I think we will be holding some of these assumptions. So if not in one area, then in the other. And when it so happens on a global scale, so if you're looking at sort of the, the, the north and south divide in terms of power and balance across the globe, it does mean that people who grew up, say, in, in the Western world, might just it's just something that skips their minds. They just don't know what the experiences of other people who grew up elsewhere in the world or who are li- from elsewhere in the world or who grew up here and had a different experience would be like. And so research has shown and people's experiences show that if we then meet at one place to so say in this country and we all have all these different experiences, we are all coming from different backgrounds, that some of us might be having certain challenges navigating the workplace or navigating society. And then there's a cross section who just are not even aware of what those challenges are. And so my work is around helping the other side see and understand why why you cannot assume that the play field is level for everybody. But also if the play field is not level for you, what can you do at a personal level um, working with everybody to help you manage and navigate what is a really unleveled play, play field. So it does take the, the two worlds meeting to try and write something that is much, much bigger and much, much more complicated than we can actually describe. Presumably, this is a, a, something that's becoming more and more of a challenge or certainly becoming more to the surface of businesses because we're going a lot more, you know, in an era of globalisation, companies that may have been just UK focused with a small, uh, predominantly UK workforce are now experiencing growth into global markets. They're now, you know, are getting, uh, I guess, more exposed to dealing with uh, different cultures and perhaps their workforce is becoming more global as well. So are you seeing a real rise in these challenges as a result of that, this sort of era of globalisation? How have you seen things develop? Absolutely. So we do know that there's loads of people who are qualified and educated and are being produced from universities and all sorts of learning institutions. But many companies will still say there is a talent gap, that finding the right person for the jobs that you have is still a big challenge globally, no matter where you are. Because of this, and just the changes that we know that we're living in a more volatile, ever-changing world, less predictable that if you are going to stay on top of the talent agenda, if you're going to have the best people come working for you, then you have to stop looking in the one place that you've been looking. You have to stop looking in the same way that you have been looking. And that means you're going to have to bring all sorts of people in your organization. You have to look at the wide range of talent that you probably haven't considered uh, before. And the problem with that is that organizations will have been traditionally sort of designed as a box. And this is the human-centric piece that changes everything. It's a box. That's our view of organizations. Everyone has to come in and fit into your box. So you slot in here, you slot in here. I can just maybe move you around and you all slot into different places, but you all have to fit in my box. And if you do not fit in my box, either I will make your experience really negative or I will kick you out of my box. Now, that is, I think, an outdated way of looking at organizations because I think the people should come in first. And then you can build whatever you want to build around and across them. You have to innovate the way organizations are structured and designed because the people who are coming in are going to come in into all shapes, sizes, backgrounds, and have you created the space where they're going to land. So it was all fine when we first started, maybe, you know, many, many years ago, you would have said in the factories or uh, the, the, the industrial period that, you know, you'd have the men working in a factory in a certain section and there were no women coming in. When the women came in, then that space has changed. So you can no longer say it's your little box where the men come and fit in. You have to redesign this space. And many organizations are lagging behind in terms of putting the human beings at the center and how the human beings and their needs are changing. They're just catching up. And that's what we call human-centric sort of workplaces, thinking through which, you know, what type of new human beings, what types of human beings are now in my workplace and how does my workplace need to change to keep up with the changes that I'm seeing in the workforce and in the world around me. I think that's a fantastic and very, very clear explanation. And it's music to my ears as a recruiter, because obviously one thing we're always trying to do is to widen the talent pools that we can access for clients. And I think 
you know, from a recruitment perspective, I think one of the, the terms that I um, am sort of really trying to work against, and it's one of the most common said phrases I hear, is that we need someone who's going to fit in with our culture. We need, or, or we get re- we get rejection because a candidate doesn't it isn't the right, and I use the word in inverted commas, culture fit. So what I think is really important is we need to dispel that myth of you need to be the right culture fit. And we should look at be looking at individuals that can evolve the culture. And that does mean coming outside of those boxes. And if I can get more clients to, you know, look, come, come at me with that mindset, okay, we need someone that's going to evolve the culture, which may be from all kinds of diverse backgrounds that, that may enable that to happen, but not just, you know, it um, doesn't have to be like a, a, a background that relates to an, an ethnic background or anything like that. It can also be from the sectors. It can be from different, it, it's so wide ranging in all of us to be able to widen that panel. What would you say if you're in, my shoes and you were trying to educate a client to say okay well i think you want to evolve your culture but i want you to try and open your mind to that (laughs) which is really difficult for me right it's one of the biggest challenges i face i think it's the right thing i think that the word evolving your culture is 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 the thing to do because who created this so if you have a culture who created it for example who created your culture are they still even there what you're calling your culture was created by a group of people about 60 or 70 years ago. Now they're dead, but you still hang on to that culture. You know, a really simple question. This culture you have, who has created it? Are they still in the organization? How did it come about? Because culture is created by people. It doesn't create itself. Now, if there are new people, then they should evolve the culture that was created um, previously. But what we're trying to, what we're seeing with the organizations that are asking you for culture fit are people who are saying, we have this culture. It's been going on for 200 years. We will not change it, though we know generations are changing. We know that global travel and global movements are, you know, are changing the demographics of our societies everywhere in the world. I go to Nairobi now, and I, you know, sometimes I'm like, which country is this? Because it is so diverse. People have moved from, from Asia, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a cosmopolitan city. There's people from all over the world. Now, that's the same as London. That's the same as modern cities. Now, if you're saying that this is our culture, who created it? When was it created? Why was it created? What was it created for? Are those things still relevant for us or for you today? So the, the whole thought about evolving your culture is a conversation that I think people should not avoid if they want the organization to keep up. Totally get that. And obviously, as a specialist DNI consultant yourself, do you think that a lot of this culture fit um, excuse, for once another word, sometimes if they want to reject somebody for they use that reason, is it down to a, you know inherent fear of change? Um, and do you, and it, you know, to to take that a little bit a point further, do you think that therefore things are getting better or worse from a diversity and inclusion sort of front end perspective? Yes, absolutely. So I think I think yeah, when people say culture fit and do not want to work around their culture, it's it's the fear of change. And it's a fear of unknown. If I change my, this is all I've ever known. People, then that culture has produced identities in people. We know that people are very, um, everybody is keen on protecting their identity because protecting your identity helps you preserve your self-esteem, helps you to have some sort of continuity in your life. So anything that threatens what you think is attached to your identity might be resisted. It might be seen as something that you you may not like. Now, in terms of uh, diversity and inclusion, if you say, have things changed, have things progressed? I would say yes and, and no. <laughs> so, so let's, let's go with a let, let, let's go with a yes first. So in one of my jobs the, of the Parker Review, which is um, trying to illuminate ideas of increasing ethnic minority representation on FTSE wards. So ethnic minorities are very senior levels. And they were having a sort of like a review of the work that they did a few years ago. And so I, and I, think, I thought that was a really good place to start if you're going to say how things improved. And I saw some improvement out of this report. It's a report I would say, you know, most people should look up. So, for example, for the FTSE 100 companies, there was a 62, uh, 63, I think, percent of, you know, 63 percent of the companies that they surveyed had at least now one director of color on their board compared to, say, three or four years ago, which I think is when the, the, uh, the report was produced. So that's, that's an improvement. And there was a 31% as well um, that, that met their target for FTSE 250. So, you know, from a research point of view, we have seen, you know, that, this, that the targets are off track anyway. Nobody's, we don't know if they will be met, but there's still time for people to do something. There's also some really growing, powerful conversations uh, across all industries. We've seen when, when people have done some 
things and you know the media and and the social media pick up on it straight away so for example uh, the gucci blackface sweater for example uh you know there was a media sort of it went wild people protested what happened to to megan and harry's child the, the, the monkey comparison so things like we're seeing that people are more aware of what can or cannot be said not everyone is but we're seeing that this is now a mainstream conversation and people from different backgrounds and, and parts of our society are coming up whether it's something against women or something about against the lgbt community or something against race that people from different parts of the community of our society are coming uh, forward to say this is not how we would like to to be seen this is how not how we would like to be represented. You know, just, I think, was it last week that the Archbishop of, of Canterbury, uh, you know, the church is one of the, our biggest and oldest and probably widest reaching institutions globally. Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury officially said that we know that the church is institutionally racist and we should do something about it. Now, that's something that we couldn't have thought might happen 10 years ago. It's happening now. So are things changing for better? I think we could say... Yes, to some extent, there's some traction around around the issue of diversity. We are, we are beginning to see there's some sort of awareness and awakening. It's not too widespread, but there is progress. More in a public consciousness now, perhaps. Absolutely. We have money through the work of so many people over the years. I think we are starting to get into people's consciousness and we're starting to make this a more conscious issue. People might resist it, but they can no longer say they, they have never heard of it or that they don't, they don't know it exists. So that, that is a good progress. Sure. On the other side, however, we do know that last year um, a report came out um, um, of sort of uh, BME senior executives. Uh, I think it was a Green, uh, a green Park report uh, that the numbers had dropped. Uh, the number of non-white uh, board executives, senior executives had dropped uh, from 9% in 2018 to 7.4% in 2019. Now, when all these things, when I'm saying we're making progress, you know, there's, there's more people, and then we see this kind of drops, then we, you know, we, you have to think, what is really going on? So that, that's the, the suspicious side that we have to investigate. The government figures also show that, you know, there have been higher reported cases, you know, the cases of, of hate crime, you know, are, are rising year on year for the last five years. So it does show that something or someone is keen to fight back. And we're seeing that. I mean, I'm a outside outside of work. Sorry to stop. Outside of work, so I'm a huge football fan, right? And I th- I wonder if this this public consciousness also then provides you with the choice, right? Because you then know if it's if it's been spoken about and it's been made more aware, then it gives people a choice. And unfortunately, we're seeing in the in the football in particular football circles a huge rise in racism over the last. 12 months that I, I mean, I personally uh, didn't see it coming. I thought we were making huge progress with the things like the Kick It Out campaign and you felt like we we're in a good space. And suddenly there's been a huge eruption of sort of racist abuse being found within football grounds, which are very public events, you know, should be family friendly events, um, where people now feel like they're able, um, for whatever reason, empowered. And whether that's due to the public consciousness piece or not, I don't know, but they feel more empowered now to be discriminative in public. And that's got to be a real concern, I would think. Absolutely. And I am under no illusion that we're going to see less of that. I think we're going to see more of it because, as I said to you, when people who are resistant to change will always see change as taking something away from their identity. Now, they are very preoccupied with trying to preserve something, whether that is self-esteem or continuity or, or something. By, by seeking to prevent that, they're, they're likely to just be more sort of hardlined and um resisting and being on the extreme end. So we're more likely to see this kind of thing. I like that you've raised the the, the football sort of picture, I think is is a really good example of where we see that people now feel that if you have the permission to protest this, I have the permission to reflect it on you some more. It becomes some sort of a, a battle, which is a shame, but that is the reality. And, you know, it, it's not just in football. We know that uh, because many organizations have, been, have then gone through such efforts to try and diversify, especially their senior leadership, because we do know that at lower levels uh, in many organizations, the representation is, is there. You know, if, if, you're, if an organization is still struggling to recruit minority groups or women or, or LGBT at the lower levels, then we do know that that, that is an unusual organization. So something needs, needs doing. However, I think the battle, the battle is at senior levels. <laughs> this, this is what I refer to the higher you go, uh, the whiter it becomes and, and probably the mailer it becomes because of what we know about leadership, what, we, what people have kind of historically 
built in their minds as the ideal sort of prototype of a leader. And anything that does not fit that prototype, anyone who does not fit that prototype is rejected, consciously or unconsciously. So as organizations try to bring minority groups into leadership, we have an established system who has an idea of what a leader should or should not be like. These minority groups then start to experience what is really a hostile leadership environment. So that's the other part of are things improving or not? Well, for the minority groups who are going to take up leadership, they're going to be solos. They're going to be one of, for a long, long time, we're going to have ones of because the ones we've recruited are now leaving according to this Green Park report. And the reason that's happening is because the environment, that box I was talking about earlier, has a shape that they had to fit because they came in and they want the, the shape that the box needs. So the box has just tortured them out of place. So how much do you think then this is, uh, the improvements are down to, God, I don't want to put it this way, but uh, checkbox exercises, if you like, for some of the, the, the larger corporates. And, in, and I've heard a few terms as well of, of something called diversity fatigue. You know, so, uh, the kind of t- Do the two elements play together? Do you think that some of these decisions are checkbox exercise or do you think there is genuine change of, of leadership boards really wanting to improve the diversity on their boards, or do you think it's the the, the foremost, the, the you know, trying to check a box? So yes, yeah, so let, let's look at the checkbox system, which is again, in everything we see is a product of something. It's a product of how we have previously behaved, how we've been sort of programmed to think and see things. So if we see that oh, they want us to hire minority groups, okay, panic, 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 get one in, then announce it to the world, and then ask the world to applaud you because you've got a minority group now, show them off, I'm done. My job is done. You see, I got one minority group. I am a champion of diversity. Yay. This, this is the checkbox exercise thing. So recruit some minority, just one or two, and count the job done without thinking, have I changed? How, how does my culture look like? What kind of culture am I bringing these people into? What are my motives really for bringing you know, minority groups in the workplace? Do I really believe that they are the talent that are going to evolve and change my workplace and give me the competitive edge over everyone else? Your motives, your culture, the reasons why you're doing this are really just as important as doing it itself. And most people forget that. They go in and say, good, we brought in three, you know, minority, we brought in two women, three that, four this. It's all about the numbers. With that, and again, it's that piece around human-centered workplaces. Do not look at people as numbers so you count them one, two, three, this is what I can see. These are human beings. They're not numbers. And you have to think about how your organization is bringing them on board, onboarding them, looking after them. And fulfilling their own, these people have ambitions and their own reasons for coming to you. So do not think that you're doing them a favor, bringing them on board. It's like work done, you know, boxes ticked. No, those people have ambitions. They've come there to do work, to improve your business. If you're not going to, if you're not going to give them the space to grow, to contribute, to be authentically themselves, then you've wasted your time. So checkbox system things just don't work. And then just this, you've mentioned one of my things I really dislike to hear about diversity fatigue. Well, I was, I was scared to mention it, but I've read about diversity fatigue. You are. And- <laughs> so, so there's a story I tell about my recent encounter with diversity fatigue. I was talking to somebody who runs a medium-sized company. And I'm talking about, you know, just as I've been talking to you about organizational culture and why the culture where the you know people are brought into is really important into how they're supported and how making that more sort of about the people rather than about the box. And he rolls his eyes and say, oh, in diversity and inclusion again, literally rolls his eyes. What is that all about? So later on, I went into, uh, you know, I went onto this person's website, you know, because I thought that he's saying that because he's done so much work around diversity that he's just so tired, you know. I went to look at this person's website and there was, you know, majority, uh, you know, white male workforce of actually a certain age as well. There was one woman and her photo was to the right side corner. So thinking, goodness me, I wonder how she feels about that. But there was nobody else. And that, that got me really angry. I felt like picking up the phone and calling him and telling him, you did not roll your eyes at me because you have not done any work with the diversity of your leadership team. How can you be tired about it? And the truth 
you know, about this diversity fatigue is, is people refusing to connect with the subject, is people refusing to be resilient um, enough to continue with the, 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 the topic of diversity. It's like, oh, no, no, just take it away. I haven't got the strength. For me, what I really would like to, if I was to go back into this conversation again with this gentleman, I would tell them, I need you to build your resilience so you can stay with this issue because this issue is not going away. The world is changing. Your organization is changing. The world around you is changing. It's not business as usual. Talent, as you've always known it, has evolved. You need to have the resilience to evolve with the time. So you need to stay to pay attention and, and stay with the issue and stay with the topic. The other side of, the, of that fatigue is, uh, you know, this is the bit I understand of the champions like me and you who are trying to explain this to other people. We are tired for a good reason. <laughs> we are tired because people are rolling their eyes. We are tired because we are now seeing more people shouting and, you know, insulting other people at football matches. You know, we, we are tired because we are afraid that, you know, we might not make the progress despite so much effort and so much investment that is being made on the issue. And, and for that, I think there's something around how, how we look after ourselves. How, you know, some level of self-care that we should prioritize if we are going to stay with the issue, if we're not going to burn out. And that's something I think in the coming months I'd really like to explore. How do we look after ourselves knowing that bigotry and the system as we know it is going to fight back? We need to be ready. So we are the ones who should be tired, not the other side. The other side, we're going to work with them to build their resilience so they can you know, stay with the issue and do not check out and do not roll your eyes. I do not think. I do not think that anyone who hasn't done, even if you've done much, if we think, you know, the figures that we're asking for, instance, of one person on a board of a FTSE 100 company, that is not much of a change, is it? That's not something that should get someone tired. So I do not think that the time for fatigue is now. And I'd like us to get that word fatigue out of people's vocabulary straight away. Let's talk about how we can build the resilience of organizations of people who hold power, the decision makers, so that they can stay with the issue, so they can improve their workplaces, so they can create a better work, you know, work, work environments that, that everyone can come and thrive. And then let us support the champions and see how they can do some, how we can support them with their own self-care so they can be able to support the agenda beyond uh, the decade that we are in now. I know that's something you've got as well. Is you you you're a big believer in something which which you term I think is it's calling sort of adopting a village culture approach to inclusion. So can you tell us a little bit more about? Obviously you're a fa- you're a founder of the Inclusive Village anyway, which is your business. But tell us a little bit more about how a, a business can do more to adapt to what you would call a sort of a village approach. Yes, yeah, so yes, yeah, so it's it's something that is still kind of under wraps because I'm still developing it. But the essence of it is this: I think you hear a lot um, organizations talking, you know, people talking about these things of clans and tribes as like the new things that people should be and adopt in the workplace. Now, I happen to have the privilege to have grown up in a place where I belonged to a clan. So my clan is called Kadem. My tribe is called Luo. I lived in a village, like most of you here do. You know, and then there's the wider thing of, of a country and, and, and community and then the globe. So I have a different sense of, you know, when you're looking at these things from outside in, it's very easy for you to think that you, 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 what you're seeing is correct. But for someone who's lived through this, who know what those terms mean, I can see how when we transfer those terms to organizational settings, we still don't get it right. What do tribes do? Tribes build an identity. You know, your tribes are kind of united by blood. You know, you can't, you know, tribes really, if you know how, the, the origin of tribes, you, you did not join a tribe, you were born into a tribe. It's the same as a clan. So if, you know, it's, it's when you tell people, you're telling people, come together with people who, with whom you share a lot in common and with whom, you know, you have a lot in common with. And it's almost like if I'm in your tribe, those guys are in the other tribe. There's a very clear distinction between my tribe and your tribe. Now think of it in an organizational setting. How helpful do you think that view of those words are to us or this clan and that clan? So when you start, it's closed, it's siloed, it's very, it's the thing that we're trying to get away from because we're trying to open up the workplace. We're trying to to get people to, to, to interact. We're trying to not just open up the workplace, we're trying to open up the world. The world is open. And so it's, it's an idea that I'm developing. I really would like to see how organizations can move beyond some of these words that 
you know, they sound really sexy. They sound like they're the new things that people should be talking about. But for those of us who intrinsically know what those words mean, sometimes we cringe because we can see those same behaviors being transferred with the use of those words in organizations. And we're like, is this really what you're trying to create? Was this the, this is the outcome that you're expecting? So stay tuned for, for this and, and many more. I will be exploring this. Um, I have some really interesting anecdotes that I'd like to share in due course. So, so yeah, but that, that's in a nutshell is really, uh, yeah, what, what, what it is about or what it is likely to, to, to shape up to be. Well, it sounds exciting. I will definitely put some links in the episode notes for those interested in finding out more. There's also going to be a link to an amazing event which we're going to find out a little bit more about in section two of this podcast as well. So I'll let Margaret explain that a little bit later on. So I know that uh, that story relates to some of the research you've been undertaking recently, which is called the Black Vanguard, which is examining mm. experiences of the most senior black leaders across four UK industries. I know this is research that hasn't been released yet. So um, obviously, I'll put a link to um, your LinkedIn profile in the episode notes here. So if people want to find out more about that research when it's available, uh, Margaret, they'll know where to go. But I wonder if we could just break now to find out a little bit more about you. Time to find out more about you. So how do you relax in your downtime? What, what, what are the things you get up to outside of your research and outside of your work? Oh, a lot, actually. Uh, so I am a mom. I have two children, recently turned eight and recently turned four. So I can, you know, I, I'm impatient to, I really always want to get out of work so I can go and live my life <laughs> with my children. <laughs> that does occupy a big chunk of every free space in my head is probably uh, shopping for toys on Amazon or in the real shops. <laughs> <laughs> I know it well, but you've got the same age gap. My daughter's 10 and my son is six. So I, I know the eight and four age gap very well. It's a, it's a good fun age gap, I think. They can still play together, but they've got their own sort of uh, hobbies and interests at the same time. But they can also keep each other entertained. And so it's busy, you know, it's busy, it's fun, it's ballet, it's football, it's it's parties it's it's all that but then i also uh what, what i've done what i what, you know what i really enjoy is sharing community so you know i moved here i haven't got family living locally but i have invested a lot in creating community around me and and and, and most of my time goes into nurturing and building that community around me so whether those are my kenyan friends or um i'm a committed church uh, member of my local church called welcome church in working so, and, you know, building loads of friendships there and building community with people is something I'm really interested in. Uh, when I have time, I read, I read all sorts. So busy life, fun life, community is really at the core of it. And, and sharing my life with, with people is something I absolutely enjoy. Well, I think there's one thing that's coming across in this podcast. It's your passion for community, whether it's workplace, family or external. It, uh, it, it really does come across, which is fantastic. So in, in your in your life to date then, um, Margaret, who are the two people who have been the most influential to you in your career? Well, that's a really difficult question uh, because my career has changed and evolved so much. That, so let me just say something. That this is, I don't know if I've shared this narrative with people before. So the earlier part of my career, before I came to the UK, I felt like my career took off really quickly and I could see myself, you know, being an early bloomer and, and going places. So this was before the age of 25. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I was in, in, you know, in sort of my natural setting. So there wasn't a lot of politics or, you know, there were barriers as there would always be for everyone. Um, and so at, at that point, um, yeah, I had some family members who'd gone on and done really well. So we, we grew up in, a, I grew up in a remote sort of part of Kenya, a rural village. And I went to one of the worst schools, I think, at that point anyone could ever go to. Um, <laughs> so I spent most of my life feeling massively undereducated. Uh, and maybe that's why I love education, because I, I do appreciate not having had a decent one in my early life. Uh, yeah, so so for me, I think my, that earlier part of my my, my life was uh, looking at people who'd made it from backgrounds like mine and gone on to do amazing things. And it's still something that I think I've carried on. Uh, I remember a few years ago talking about my career with somebody and, and the amount of times I talked about inspirational figures. And these are not figures like in my local village. I always looked at people like Barack Obama. I love, I, I just love the inspiration of people who've done things against odds so i i revel in there you know people were the first something to do something and, and that's not because i you know well it is probably but i think that's where you really that's where i really see my inspiration was like wow that was the you know before this guy this thing was impossible 
And now it's possible for so many people because this one person or this one woman or one man has done it. And I think I always look up figures like that uh, to help me. In recent years, I've, I have a portfolio of entrepreneurs that I kind of follow. Some of them don't know I follow them. <laughs> but I, yeah. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you kind of have your hit, your, 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 your hit list of people. You're kind of keeping tabs on them on LinkedIn and reading about stuff they write. Yeah, sure, sure. Taking some notes. And, and often, they, for me, they are people who, who have an, who've come from unusual backgrounds. The people that inspire me the most are the people who've had to overcome odds. Because I do feel like if, if the level, if the play field was level, if all of us had the nurturing and the support and the applause that most people have, I think we would be very successful. But I think the barrier, there are just many, many barriers for many, many people that cap potential even at a very young age. And I am so interested in the people that, you know, sort of um, navigate barriers and, and, and surmount barriers and come out the other side. And so if you know them, just send them my way because that's, that's where I get my inspiration. I could definitely send you some. I've got some, uh, I think if I gave you a list of names that I follow, most people on this podcast probably wouldn't have heard of them. But they're, for me, they're hugely inspiring. So I'll send you some names. But while I've got, I, I know we shared a, a book that we recommended off, off, off there uh, a couple of weeks ago. But there's, um, I don't know if you've ever come across Guillermo Gomez-Pena and Coco Fusco, which are two South American performance artists. But if you haven't, I will definitely send you their links. They are my my inspirations, and I think um, I think you'll find them quite interesting because they've had to. Both of them have been um, you know challenging, I guess, cross cultural issues for their entire careers. But um, yeah, Guillermo Gomez Pena is a guy who's uh, and Coco Fusco, who's a his female compatriot, if you like. They're, they're both performance artists. They're, they're very in- independent and they come together. But um, yeah, you might find them inspirational. So while I'm not talking this like it's a conversation online, which I'm having now, but I'll share the documentation with you off there. And if anyone's interested, I'll put a, a, a link in the episode notes. That's, that, those are, yeah, so a, anybody who, for me, and, and, so, and it's the thing you've said that, you know, the people whose, whose stories you have on your podcast, most people would not see, like, they'll be like, oh, who's that? And for me, that, that's where I live because I'm always trying to find hidden voices. I'm always find, I'm trying to find sort of hidden heroes, actually, because I think, Heroism is, is overrated in certain ways. There are people that we could learn more from based on the amount of work and the amount of sort of obstacles that they've had to navigate to get to where they are. And I think they teach us more, to be fair, than if all things were fine and the, the sun was shining and, and you made it to the limelight. I mean, that's great. Well done on you. But I'm more interested in the other people who have to literally crawl and, you know, climb and crawl again and bleed on their way there. Sure, sure. And my goal sort of is to try and help people sort of do that crawling, hopefully no bleeding, but uh, the crawling. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not, yeah, fingers crossed. Well, I'll tell you what, if you get a chance at the end of this recording, if you've got a minute spare, uh, go to Google and have a look at Coco Fusco and Guillermo Gomez-Pena. And Google, is, it, the project they did that inspired me when I first started following these guys um, it was a, a project called The Couple in the Cage. Oh, wow. Um, you might find it title. interesting. They did a performance in Covent Garden in 1991, um, And you, it's one of those performances which you wouldn't believe actually took place, but it did. And yeah, I, I'll, let, I'll let you watch the video to, to follow it. But I think, I think it might be something that you find... Um, Quite interesting. I, I would love that. Yeah, sounds inspirational. <laughs> I know I'm going completely off tangents. So apologies for that. So what are the resources that have really helped you on your journey? I know you said you're an avid reader. Are there any kind of resources? It doesn't have to be a book, but anything that you would um, that's really helped you on, on, on your career journey today? Yeah, so I think I go with seasons. It depends on what I'm looking for. So I will read what is in that season. One of the books that I think... Um, <laughs> I'm trying to look around if I can see it because I haven't seen it in a long time. But I read a book a few years ago um, called Women Who Run With The Wolves. It's mythical. It's, it's psychological. It's, it's quite a weird book, but I really liked it. And, and so I kind of like reading that, that kind of sort of deep psychological, mythical <laughs> sort of stuff. And, you know, sometimes I just read sort of self-help books that can get me there quickly or yeah like you know, like the book that you've just uh, sent me which i think the, the, the corporate tribe I'm, I'm definitely gonna devour this in in the next few days because i think that, i think they're onto a really good idea here but i think i, I might come at it at a different angle so 
So people do send me all sorts of resources and, and I just, yeah, I go, it goes with what I'm trying to do. So I change my reading lists. Uh, based on, but I really would encourage women to go with this one. I'll find it and put a link in the episode notes. So if people are interested, they can go st- straight there and link it. Yeah, I, I, I thought, you know, it's a book that I was reading it and I, I decided I didn't want to finish reading it because it was a journey for me. Every chapter I opened, I could see myself traveling uh, through time and unraveling all these uh, sort of stories that she tells. I love stories. So it's sort of like anecdotes and um, um, mythical stories that she tells. And then she kind of narrates that to the sort of Jungian psychology. And I, I absolutely loved it. So yeah, but you know, loads of pieces that inspire me every day. Yeah. I'll make sure that's linked in the episode notes for those interested in following it. So last question about you before we jump back into section two. If you could invite three people to a dinner party, who would they be and why? Barack Obama. I would invite him because, again, for me, he crossed um, a frontier that that has really helped sort of change people's perspectives of leadership and and achievement. You know, his book, The Audacity of Hope, is just illuminating. Um, It's a story of how you dare to dream. And and if you go after it, it it just happens. So I would invite Barack and Michelle Obama, (laughs) if they would ever come. Because of this recent sort of admission that the church is institutionally racist, I would invite the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> I'd love to ask him, so what you going to do? <laughs> and I'd write it all down or I'd record him. And then I'd go back a year later and say, so what have you done? I think Barak and, uh, would be keen to hear as well, to be honest. So he'd be... Uh... <laughs> exactly. I think he would be wanting me to, um, to, to share some notes or to... to to yeah, to to hear what what he's got to say, and then people like Toni Morrison, whose poetry I love, poetry Maya Angelou. If they came back from the dead, <laughs> I would invite them definitely. <laughs> Share some time because I know I would just be on the floor filled with inspiration. Great. Well, it sounds like it'll be quite an eclectic and fun party. And uh, lots of interesting questions would be posed. I have no doubt about that whatsoever. Well, we're going to jump back in. We're going to go to a quick advert break. When we come back, we're going to find a little bit more about some implementable actions that hopefully you can share with the group that the, um, the listeners can take away. So stay with us. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Shaping the future of human resources together. Final questions. So, Margaret, if there were some immediate implementable actions you could share with our listeners that they could, I guess, after listening to this podcast, immediately go away and start to implement, what would they be? Yeah, so, so first of all is, um, I, I would, you know, some sort of reflection, thinking through, depending on who you are, are you... Um, a talent uh, practitioner? Are you a head of DNI, or are you a champion? You know, someone who works in this space. I think that the first thing is a reflection on your journey, or where are you, and what are you trying to achieve, and using data to explain to you why you are where you are, and then using that data to illuminate where you need to be. I think reflection, reflection as an organization, as a team, and as a practitioner is 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 core to, you know, understanding these issues. Because, you know, diversity and inclusion, all these things, the change, the community that we're trying to achieve, it's not a destination. It's always going to be something that we work towards. So just even understanding it as a journey rather than a destination is something that uh, I encourage in practice. So people need to be more curious, need to ask more questions to keep things. Absolutely. Asking asking the right questions was the next thing I was going to say. It's, you know, because these things are quite political, people make them political. So asking questions that do not stop the conversation, but that encourage the conversation that encourage curiosity around the issue. So, for example, instead of um, saying what you've seen, you know, I have seen we do not have any women at senior level. Asking the question, phrasing that as a question, what would happen to our organizations if, what do you think would happen? You know, especially to very senior leaders, what would happen to organizations if we had more 
women at senior levels, for example. And that just opens up. It invites everybody in to be a part of that conversation instead of you going and saying, I've looked at the data. We do not have this many number of people. And somebody can say, so? Or they can say, we've had you. The conversation is pretty much dead on arrival. So I think just the act of asking open-ended questions and you know the resilience to stay with the issue uh, and, and you know, those open-ended questions will help you to stay with the issue rather than having you, the door shut down on you is something else. And yes, avoiding the checkbox systems. Avoiding the checkbox systems definitely is another one. And working on, invo- as we say, sticking to that evolving the culture, evolving the culture all the time and what can, what can take our business forward. I always think as well, if you're doing the same things, you're going backwards, right? And, um, you know, it's, it's, you always need to be evolving, not just, not just you know, your culture in terms of your talent, but actually everything you do should be, you know, looking to innovate and looking to change because that's how you move things forward. So um, asking more questions, being curious, fantastic, great response. So something I'm really interested to talk about as well is I know you've got an event coming up and I'd like to definitely promote it here because, uh, you know, it's, it's a game changing event for, for people. Um, I'm going to ask you a bit more about it in a minute. It's called A Million Dreams. So I'm going to park that thought because there's something that inspired this event. So before we talk about the event, I know that over the last four years, you've said that uh, you've been rewarded with something you call sort of a life transforming journey where the word impossible has disappeared from your vocabulary altogether. Um, so I know that's that's been part of what's inspired the event to come. So we'll talk about the event in just a moment. But I wanted to find out more about what that you know what's happened over those four years. What 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 was involved in that journey that that's really played a part in in, in leading to this 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 transformation? Yeah. So so I so I came here ten years ago. Obviously, when you you know I was excited. I came here because my my husband, you know, my boyfriend who was here. Then we got married and and I moved to come and live here. I'd been here before just to see if I could live here. And, you know, he'd invited me during the summer. You know, he was very clever. Had he invited me during the winter, I might have had a different idea. But, you know, I came in the summer, went back home, thought, it's not too bad. It's not too cold. I could live there. And I came here. And I've always been like a really optimistic sort of uh, person who, I think in my, the earlier part of my life, I always sort of said, whatever it is, I'm ready for it. So that, that's my approach to life generally. And so many, many, you know, for the first sort of half of those 10 years, I was like, whatever this is, I will, I will go through it. I will navigate it. I'll find answers. I will move forward. But with that, I realized after some time that I was hitting my head against a brick wall that was not going to cave in. I had done everything I had done in my, the earlier part of my career to try and progress, to try and um, yeah, sort of learn more about this and learn about careers here. But I, I just felt like nothing I did made any much of a difference. And that's when I realized there must be something outside of me because the only thing that has changed is my environment. I am still the same person. So why am I not getting the same results when I'm applying the same behavior? You should get same, at least the same results, if not better. And, and so that was about like five years ago. And I think I reached a point when I, when I realized there was something in my environment. And, you know, I have written an article on LinkedIn, which I hope you will share with, with, with people. And, you know, the narratives of people that I had heard then finally began to make sense to me. It's about that unleveled play field. And when I reached that point, I thought, oh, if the play field is unleveled, then no matter how much I try, there's just sudden, if, you know, if the goalposts keep changing, there's just, this is a very hard job. It's, it's, yeah. And at that point, I felt like I probably hit rock bottom, to be fair. And that was mixed with, you know, the, the transition from being, you know, without children and having children and the impact of that on my career. Now, in, in Kenya, when women have children, I do not think it still affects their career, but it's, it's not as, as here because you kind of have the support. The society is set up for women to work. I, I'm not very sure how it's set up here. I am still grappling with this. So I wasn't prepared of what being a working mom here would look like. It just hit me. You know, I think I'd seen it, but, you know, when you see something without experiencing it, it's completely different. So I, I reached a point where I just thought, I think I'm, I'm just going to give up, you know. I started writing a blog just to keep myself sane. I thought, you know, I'll look for a job sort of in the supermarket at night or something and just enjoy my life writing a blog. I cannot do career here. But then I woke up one day and decided I was going to try something else and that meant completely changing everything so I decided to explore a career change and on this journey you know it's the people that I have met who've lent me their time lent me their support who you know there was a you know the people who just sat there and listened to me as I talked through what I wanted to do and 
and the difficult experiences that I was having, they did not have answers, but they just listened. And it's taken me, so I say it takes a village. It, it literally took a village. You know, I got a scholarship to go to uh, Kingston to go and do my MSc in, in, in occupational and business psychology. And, you know, I was very clear about the outcomes that I wanted. And I came out on the other side with the achievements that I wanted. But even with that, I, I am really aware I'm really aware of the obstacles that people face that they don't speak about. And it's a constant, constant sort of something at the back of my mind and thinking through how can we make this even just a little better. And that's not a one-person job. I think that's, that's a society's job. That, that's each and everyone, you know, everyone has something they can influence in the way people around them feel and, and are. And I think some of us, you know, are in our own lanes and because everything is fine or any problem that is not our problem is not a problem and moving away from that yeah. what was the moment when the, the word impossible then disappeared for you recably was it when you completed your studies was it when you secured your first portfolio assignment um what was that moment so it, it actually happened when so so the, when they an, announced this scholarship at Kingston, I decided to apply. I wasn't going to be able to to. I just felt I couldn't. I had a young child. I didn't want to have more sort of student debt. So I thought, you know what? I'll try to apply for this scholarship, and if I get it, or maybe I won't get it, but then I'll see how it goes. So that that was the first thing. And I think the day I won that scholarship, something in me triggered. You know, because I had many wins earlier on in my life in my career. Um, I came out of a school that nobody often at that point came out of to join a, a public university in my country because it was, as I said, it was one of the worst. At that point, it was a terrible, terrible school. There was no running water, no electricity, no library. Yeah, and it was in the middle of nowhere. So nobody expected a girl from that sort of background to, to make it to um, a public university to get such good grades. So I had some sort of record of success, but then I think the struggles I'd had when I came here completely wiped those records off of me. And going there and winning that scholarship reminded me of the girl I used to be. <laughs> and, and for me, from that day, I think the word impossible just disappeared. It's a great story. It must be quite it's such, a, it's such an emotional story as well. Um, it's, um, it is, yeah. But it's, it's, it's also... I mean, the way you talk about it, though, shows your mature approach to the problem initially. I mean, you didn't you didn't blame the world. You kind of sat back and went, OK, this hasn't worked. It's not working. It must be, you know, as you said, it's I haven't it's not me that's changing the environment around me. Something isn't isn't adding up. And it's um, and then you took action, which is what we ultimately we need this to do across everything. Right. Whether it's diversity, inclusion, whether it's talent, people need to take action. But you took action for yourself. And um, what a great story. I will share that blog. So there's, you did a blog on it, didn't you, on LinkedIn not too recently. And um. Yeah, there is a blog on LinkedIn. And, you know, it's really funny because when after, you know, the, the, the few days after I wrote this blog, I received, you know, I haven't even shared this message. I still don't know what to do with them. Women from across the globe wrote to me, thanking me for writing this article and telling me that is my story. And it didn't matter whether they were in their sort of original sort of countries where they, they grew up. So it wasn't an immigration issue. It wasn't a race sort of issue. It was just a women's issue. Women feeling a high sense of I am stuck and overwhelmed. Was this was resonating with women from across the globe. In the week after I wrote that article, I cried a lot because I just could not believe so many people in the world feeling stuck and overwhelmed just because they're female and that because they feel that the odds are stacked up against them. And I still have, you know, I read these messages and I still am trying to plan what my next step is because I have to do something to try and help, which is what they're asking for. So, you know, it was really an overwhelming experience for me. I did not expect that kind of response from across the globe, uh, but I did have it. And it did show me that there is something about when we succeed, do we look back to who we have, you know, who might have fallen the wayside or who might not have made it. And I think it's we habitually run our race going forward, going forward, and sometimes stepping all over dead bodies and never even stopping to recognize who they are. And, and, and I think that's not how to be human. I honestly do not think this is how to be human. I think we have to build in time to look back, to look at who's fallen down and why they're falling down, and if there's anything we can do. To pick them back up. I have to say, you, you're a really ins inspiring writer. I mean, I'm going to talk for you here because I've read it, and I think it does need to be shared because 
your passion comes through in your writing. Uh, you're, you're a really inspirational writer as well, and I'm not surprised at all by the following and the, and the support the article got. And I think if people are listening to this, and um, if you're not inspired already, you definitely can be, because you're holding a, an event. And let's talk about that. And, you know, we, we met for the first time. We didn't meet through LinkedIn. We're talking about networking. We met through uh, a common friend who we also met. Uh, I met through a guy called um, Woosh, who, again, we didn't meet through LinkedIn. I met Woosh through a separate WhatsApp group, uh, who then introduced me to the CIPD panel, where I met you, where we talked about the subjects, and here we are today. Um, so we're talking about that networking thing and opening communications. That's how we've come to this podcast together. But you're hosting um, a really exciting event, which you've called A Million Dreams, which is actually similar to the, um, the your article um, headline as well. But I know it's designed to really help women, and that's all kinds of women, make really big leaps in 2020 and beyond. So you are you are an inspirational woman. Uh, and if people are looking to be inspired, I think this is a really, really great opportunity for anyone listening to this to get involved. So can you talk to us a little bit about the event? I'll obviously put a link in the episode notes. People can sign up um, to the event, the, the tickets and things there, which um, which they can do. But I wonder if you could just bring the, the event to life for those listening, for those that might be interested in attending. Yes, absolutely. So I realized that even in the time when I was struggling, when I, when I thought I wanted to give up, something haunted me. I was haunted by my dreams. I really was because I've always been a dreamer. There's just stuff that I've always wanted to do. And those things don't die, whether you're achieving, where you're living, whether you're working towards your potential or whether you have given up, those dreams will never leave you. And there is nothing as haunting as an unfulfilled potential. I know the pain <laughs> of an unfulfilled potential and how that can haunt you. You know, there's that. I was inspired by the greatest showman. <laughs> A million dreams are keeping me awake. And I remember the first time I watched that movie, I cried. You know, I was, you know, I was, I was with my kids. I was trying not to show that I was crying. Well, I was crying because. That, that line in that song just hit me. It just hit me. I'm like, yes, they are. These, these dreams are keeping me awake. And, and I just imagine that there are many, many people who, because of the circumstances and you know, what's happened, they, they've, they've seen that you know, the, 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 what impossible has creeped into their sort of vocabulary and, and their way of living. And one thing I know that even when that word creeps into your vocabulary, your dreams don't die. They're still there you will be awake at night. And this event was because I managed to face my dreams. You know, I haven't achieved my dreams yet, but I'm walking towards them. And this event is about reigniting those dreams. It's about recognizing that those dreams are not going to die. So we might as well wake up and walk towards them. I wanted to share something of my journey with women, with, you know, I can't reach all the women right now because they're in different uh, parts of the world, those who've written to me, but there will be um, a webinar which I will uh, put out in, in due course. But I wanted to put a safe space where women who kind of live uh, within sort of travel distance can come together and work on something. It's always, you know, you said the word action. There's a small action that you can take towards your dreams. And, and so uh, that's what the event was on in Eventbrite. So I want to give, you know, I've, I have a, a lovely panel of, of women that have agreed to work with me on this event that I think that those who come will really enjoy. Uh, we're going to uh, explore topics such as the impact that you want to create. I do not think there's a single human being that lives on this earth that doesn't want to create some sort of impact for themselves or for the people around them. If this is not the reality for you, then, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a situation. And so if, if you go to the event, there's some questions that can just help people get into that frame that would I want to work towards any of these things? If that is you, go, go to the event, uh, book yourself in. They're selling really quickly, but I'd love that. And, and, you know, I've been so fortunate since I put this event out that I did have a sponsor contact me, someone I used to work for, uh, Professor Peter Savo. And he agreed to contribute towards this, you know, sponsoring this event. So that's why we are able to hold what is a really fantastic and affordable event at the cost of uh, £20 per ticket. We wouldn't have been able to do that because we are at the Hilton. But because of the generosity of other people that I have met along my journey and them coming on board to support my journey, I was, you know, I really didn't want cost or money to be a reason why some women did not attend this event. So it's really open. It's open to, to everybody. If you have something to contribute, then you should come and hold someone else's hand. If you want to get, you know, if you want help for yourself, you just want to be inspired or work towards something, this is an event for everybody. And it's, it's one of its kind. We don't know if we'll get funding for future events. But, you know, if there's someone listening to this who would like to partner, 
who would like to run events in their organizations, working with, uh, with women or just, you know, this, this is, these are subjects for everybody, actually. I've had many men asking, why are we not welcome? And I'm like, I'll get to you. Just wait. Wait a little bit. So, yes. Yeah, so, you know, if there are organizations that would like to run these kind of events, I'm opening them up. I will be opening them up in the spring and we'll be running them in organizations, in, in communities. And I'd like as many people as possible to be involved. Fantastic. So just to, just to summarise there, it's, it's an event called A Million Dreams. What's Waited Till Tomorrow starts. It's a, it's a Game Changers event. It's going to be a time for reflection, motivation, goal setting. There's going to be breakfast. It's on March the 28th. It's at the Doubletree by Hilton, Ho- uh, Hilton Hotel in Woking uh, on the 28th of March. So if you're interested, there will be a link on this podcast where you can uh, access that. And, um, you know, hopefully you'll come along to the event and be inspired as I was by, by Margaret. I know it'll be a real adventure if she's involved so um yeah hopefully um people listening to this can can get involved and they'll see you see you there to network and find out a little bit more as they go forward absolutely i look forward to seeing everybody (laughs) absolutely well that kind of brings us to a close it's been a fantastic podcast i could talk to you all day about these subject areas i feel like there just isn't enough time to tackle all these issues but um i will say it's been a fantastic talk if people want to find out more they can go to your website which is again i'll put in the episode notes if you want to find it quickly but it's inclusivevillage.com uh, particularly if you are an hr manager listening to this and you really want to find out more about how you can you know develop your corporate culture model then you know margaret is the person to, to get in touch with so all of our contact details will be on the episode notes and obviously you can access them through her website as well um, I will also put a link to your uh, Game Changers event, which you just mentioned, and to your LinkedIn blog and a LinkedIn connection if you want to connect with Margaret directly as well. Of course, if you are listening to this, uh, you're an HR and L&D professional and you have an HR or L&D related vacancy that you need some support with, do give me a call. I'm a specialist HR recruiter as well as a podcast host, and I would love to show you what a great HR experience can look like. So you can reach me directly at nick at jjrecruitment.com or you can give me a call 01727-800-377. Just leaves me to say a huge thank you to Margaret. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed every second of this conversation. It's been been fantastic, insightful and um, and educational, I hope, for those who really are passionate about evolving their, their, their cultures and their businesses. Thank you, Nick. It's been a great pleasure. It's been a great pleasure to share this podcast with you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Pleasure's all mine. And I will look forward to speaking to you all on the HRLND podcast real soon. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning into the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day of JGA HR Recruitment. If you need help with a current HR or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.